We're going to be in Isaiah 40. We're taking a break from Revelation today as Rob is gone. Isaiah chapter 40. Okay, that, that's showing up better than it does on the back screen. That's good. Like Isaiah chapter 40. I want you to think, take a second and think about how small you are. Some of us are a little bit larger than others, but um, when we think about the majesty of God's creation, we think about the vastness of God's creation, we're, we're pretty small, aren't we? Um, I want you to imagine, I've got a penny, shiny new penny that I borrowed from my two-year-old daughter who was very insistent that I give it back to her after we're done here. Uh, imagine that this penny is the sun. The sun. Now, if we think about the sun, it would take 109 earths to go across the sun. So the earth's about 8,000 miles in diameter, right? Um, about 1.3 million Earths could fit inside our sun. But this penny is the sun. Think about that. The distance to the nearest star, if this is the scale, would be 350 miles. That's like St. Paul, Minnesota. If this is the sun. Think about that scale. The Milky Way galaxy would be 7.5 million miles across if this is the size of the sun. <laughs> That's like 30 times the distance between the earth and the moon. If we think about it another way, the observable universe is like around 90 billion light years across. That's like 90 billion years that travels, light travels in a year. The time to travel to the nearest galaxy with our current technology, as of a couple years ago, I think, um, like 750 million years to the end of the known universe, 225 trillion years. Feel a little small? I meant to go to the next slide. There we go. Think about how small we are and the vastness of God's creation. And this vastness of creation tells us just a little bit about the God who made it by speaking. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He said, let all the sky and the ocean, the dry land, and um, the sun, moon, and stars, all the animals. And he spoke it into existence. It was not hard for him. We're going to take a look at a passage today that gives us a glimpse of that greatness of our God. Um, as we look at Isaiah 40. I think it does us good to get this kind of reality check, right? Because sometimes we get so caught up in what we're going, what's going on in our lives that we forget to look up, that we forget to think about God. We forget to think about God in all of his greatness. That's really one of the things that I really care about in, in worship ministry is helping people worship God is the way he reveals himself in Scripture, um, and some of the things that the Bible says about God are just amazing. The way that he has revealed himself. 
And in this passage, we're going to get just a glimpse. And Isaiah does this to show his people just a little bit about who their God is. Um, If we think about Isaiah, the prophet, um, you know, we're stepping away from Revelation. So we've been in Revelation. We kind of know that context. Um, If you're in the Wednesday morning Bible study, we've been going through Isaiah. But for the rest of us, um, I think we need a little bit of kind of orientation to where Isaiah is um, a prophet in the Old Testament who is speaking primarily to the southern kingdom of Israel, um, so Judah. So when, um, after, so King David, King Solomon, after King Solomon, it's split into two nations. Um, the northern kingdom really never obeyed God. The southern kingdom had periodic kings who did. Um, and Isaiah is, st- is speaking to the southern kingdom, but they still had this long-term drift away from God. And as a result, God promised through the prophets that they were going to be judged, that God was going to eventually have enough of their idolatry, enough of their sin, and he was going to judge them, and his wrath was going to be poured out on them. And that's a lot of what happens in the book of Isaiah. Um, He's calling them to repentance. He's warning them about what's going to happen if they don't turn back to God. And we know that historically this happened. They didn't turn. Um, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586, and they were taken off into exile. And eventually a remnant returned. Um, One of the things that Isaiah also does is talks about what comes after this exile. He talks about a future day when Messiah will come. He talks about a future day when God will restore his people. So we're kind of right at that turning point and when we get to chapter 40 in Isaiah. Um, he spent a lot of time talking about how Israel's going to be judged. But God is going to bring restoration to his people. We're going to focus starting in verse 12, but I think in order to just get a little bit of what's going on, we need to read the, the beginning part of the chapter. I'm going to just go, go for it. Verse 1 of chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries. You might sound familiar if you read the Gospels. This is um, something that the Gospels point out. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, the judgment is over. Someone's coming who's going to restore. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands, will stand forever. And he says, get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, that's Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, look and see your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. 
His arm rules for him. Our arm is a symbol of strength in ancient Israel. You know, in the days when they would fight hand to hand, the one who was the strongest often would win um, in a struggle. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will guide, gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So this He's talking about how rescue is coming. God is coming with might, but he's also coming as the one who tends them like a shepherd tends his flock, who cares for his sheep, who cares for the lambs, holds them close, gathers them, brings them along gently. So we're going to see a couple things in this passage, we're going, to see, we're going to spend most of our time talking about the character of God. This is really what most of Isaiah 40 is about. What is this God like? This one who's going, who has judged them, but who is going to restore them. But then also it's going to talk about, um, yeah, his, 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 what his restoring is going to look like a little bit. Um, and he's going to show his love and care for his people. So in verses 12 through 31, there's a whole bunch of questions. And don't worry, this is not a test. Most of these are rhetorical questions that the answers are obvious as, as we read them, as we hear them. The unique God, one of a kind. There's nobody like him. This is what Isaiah sets out to show Israel right here to show us today. So you felt small thinking about that the universe like that, the galaxies. Isaiah does the same kind of thing to the people of Israel. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The waters the waters of the sea is really what he's talking about. In the cup of your hand. I'm ready to go measure the ocean. You ever stood next to Lake Michigan and had a, just an amazement of how big it is? And the oceans are way bigger. So who can measure the waters in the hollow of their hand? No one. And marked off the heavens with a span, the skies. So here's a picture in daylight. We already saw one at nighttime. With a span. A span is from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky. Yeah, I'm going to measure all of the heavens, all of the skies with that. <laughs> Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure. All of the dirt on the earth in like a cup, like a small bucket. <laughs> And weighed the mountains in scales. Okay, I, I, mean, I definitely had, had to make sure we had a picture of a mountain because I'm not sure you in Illinois know what mountains are. <laughs> I looked it up. The tallest point in Illinois is man-made. <laughs> the top of the Willis Tower. But we have, I was just out west, which is why I, I, we had the chance to go and fly over the Rockies. And just when you see the mountains and how massive they are, 
And it says, yeah, it weighs the, the mountains in, in scales, like, like you would do business with in the ancient world. Um, you'd weigh out things and weigh money and weigh the hills in a balance. What's the obvious answer to all these? Is anybody, can anybody do that? No. He moves to a, a little bit different expression of God's greatness. Um, his, his knowledge. In verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? To determine the extent. So that's what the measure is like. Can you get around now? Now, there's, there's a couple different ways that we can understand this. This the ESV says the spirit of the Lord. Um, maybe a better way to understand it in this particular um, context is the mind of the Lord. Um, and the reason I say that is because when it was translated into Greek, um, which is what is quoted in the New Testament, um, it says, who has known the mind of the Lord. If you look at Romans um, chapter 11, um, in the middle of it, says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And then here's the quote. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Like, that's directly quoting from this verse. Uh, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He shows his greatness in the things that he's made. He shows his greatness in his knowledge. The things that he is fully aware of. And the things that he understands. Verse 14. Whom did he consult? <laughs> Think about that. Does God need to ask anybody for advice? I need to ask people for advice all the time. Because I know some things, but there's some things I'm just dumb about. And most of us are that way, right? My kids think I know everything, but that's not true. Um, I asked my daughter the other day, like, do you know that dad, there's things that dad knows, knows, doesn't know? And she's like, Really? Really? <laughs> Like, she couldn't. But God knows it all. His knowledge does not have limits. He doesn't need to ask anyone for advice. The next bit. Um, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Maybe the better way to understand that is who taught him the right way to do things? Like, as he's making all these things, did somebody have to teach him how to do it right? No, he just did it. Because he's God. And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Taught him the way to do things skillfully. And what are the obvious answers to all these questions? Has anybody done any of these things for God? No. No one. As he moves on, he, he starts to compare who we are as people. Comparison to all this, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. So like that bucket that we use to measure things, we're like a drop of water in it. Um, this, that, those scales that he used to measure were like the dust that doesn't even affect what the weight is. Um, this is 
This is a comparison of what people are before God. Now, don't worry. We're getting to how, where God cares for us. But if we think about just this, who, who God is and who we are, if, if we think that we're somehow even close to equal, Isaiah is here to tell us that that is just not true. And, and that, that happens even when we try to respond to, to God in worship. Um, in verse 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. So Lebanon in ancient Israel is the place where all the trees are. Like, in general, um, Israel doesn't have a lot of tall trees. And so to the north, in Lebanon, they used to. Not so much anymore because the ancient world, they used them. But there were massive amounts of trees, massive cedars. That's where they got the wood to build the temple. That's where they got the wood to build. And he's saying, Lebanon would not suffice. All the wood that they can imagine wouldn't suffice for fuel for sacrifices to this God. And even all the animals that live in those woods, which is as much animals as they can think of, wouldn't be enough to sacrifice to God, to, to respond and worship to God. That's how they understood worship in the Old Testament, through sacrifice. There's not enough wood. There's not enough animals to do it. And he goes back to the nations, the people of the world. All the nations are as nothing before him. You remember how we were that drop in a bucket? Guess what? That was a little bit of an exaggeration of how great we are. Um, nothing. And then, in fact, it says, then are, they are counted by him as what? Less than nothing and emptiness. So his, his greatness just can't be surpassed. It is totally unique. We're going to really just come back to 18 through 20, but it, 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 it's the first of two times it says, to who will you, him, whom will you compare me? Who will you liken God to? And it, it uses idols. That doesn't mean that we don't try to compare God. To, sometimes we do. And idols are our pathetic attempt to create substitutes for God, right? In the ancient world, they would make them out of what it says, a, a craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. So metal. He who is in too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that what? Will not move. They do all these things and then they make things that are basically paperweights. As we move on, We see God's unique sovereignty over the world. Not just his greatness, but his sovereignty. And the first set of questions, it really shows how God made the world, how, his, how great he is, how great his knowledge is, how not just big, but great, the weightiness of God. And some have said that yeah, God might be like that, but he sort of just set the world in motion and is not involved in the world that he made. Well, Isaiah is going to correct that too. Um, verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? 
Have you not understand from the foundations of the earth? I love this. He's, he's sort of like being a little sarcastic here. Like, are you new here? <laughs> Do you understand that we've been talking about God and like this is the way it has always been? This is the way that reality has always existed, that the God of the universe is great, and he's actually involved. It says it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, um, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. If you're freaked out by bugs, you might want to look away for a second. (laughs) I thought, I thought that looked cool. We used to catch grasshoppers when I was a little kid um, in the desert in Washington. My brother was really, really good at it. Um, but they're just, that's what it compares us as the inhabitants of the earth. So to recap, drop in a bucket, nothing, less than nothing, grasshoppers. Okay? But he stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Think about this picture. He takes the heavens, but what is a tent in the ancient Near East? Some of the people are nomads. It's where they live. It's the place they have come to dwell. So God stretches out the heavens as a place to dwell in. He is actively involved in the world that he has made. He's not just great far out there, he's great near us, near those, in hop- those grasshoppers. <laughs> and if we try to compare him to anything else, he uses some more, some more things to, um, to compare God to. It says in verse 23, he brings the princes to nothing. So not just your ordinary, everyday people are nothing. Even the, most, the people that we consider most important, the people that we consider to have the most significance, the big wigs, nothing compared to God. And he makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. How silly for us to place our hope in those kind of people. Because rather than God. To put our hope in human government rather than God. Because as it says in verse 24... Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So for people in ancient Israel, most of them would have been involved in some way in agriculture. Um, They knew this picture very well. Um, In ancient Israel, the There's a period of rain, and there's a period of winds coming out of the desert. 
uh, in, well, still today in Israel. And if something comes up and it doesn't have enough water and it doesn't have enough nutrients, that wind comes and just blows them away and they wither. And he says, the rulers of the earth are like that. They're there for a second, they're there for a time, and then they're gone. Then he brings us back to this, this, other que- this, this question again in verse 25. And we see that there's, there's really no substitutes allowed for God. Echoes what we saw in 18 through 20. To whom... Then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So if we think about this in the way that they might have, would have thought about this in Israel, like it doesn't seem like idols and heavenly things, things that we see up on high, are the same thing to us, right? But in that time, they often worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. So idols don't substitute, but even the things that are not made out of stone, that are not made out of metal, not made out of wood, those other things that you worship that are not this God, they still can't compare to this God. So, idols. They may represent something that they they worshipped, but basically they're worshipping something that somebody else made. A big thing to keep the, you know, we might even use it to keep a door open. (laughs) Um, The skies, the sun, moon, and stars, all those things that are so amazing, yet they are nothing compared to the God who made them. Look at what it says. He may, lift up your eyes and see who created these. And the, what's the obvious answer? This is a rhetorical question, but it helps us sometimes to think about the answer. God. He's the one who actually made those things that you are misdirecting your worship towards. He made them. He made the sun rise and set. He set the moon and the stars in their courses. He knows about all of them. You know, we're just finding out more and more each day about the vastness, the incredible complexity of the things that God has made. He has it all named. He calls them by name. 
He knows where all those things that are in that picture and <laughs> that's just like, I think that's one galaxy. I, that was what it was labeled. Um, I'm not, I didn't do well in science classes, so um, forgive me, Dan. <laughs> Always makes me nervous talking about science teacher, uh, science when there's a teach, guy who teaches science in the room. <laughs> but we we look at it, those things and we, in all of our vast sum of human knowledge, don't know everything there is to know about the vast expanse of space. And God, it says not one of them is missing. He knows where every one of those things are. The objects that we worship, whether it's an idol that's formed, whether it's something out there in creation that we look up in the sky to, um, or if it's something else that we substitute for God. None of these things can compare. When we put something as more of an object of worship than God, that's an idol. When we care about that more than God, that's an idol. How do the things we substitute for God compare to him? How about power? How about money? How about sex, pleasure, security, even family, relationships, our country, our leisure time, our amusement, our sports teams, you name it. Do those things compare at all to the God that Isaiah is describing here? No. Nothing is an acceptable substitute for God. And then the amazing thing that we see happen in Isaiah 40 is that this God that is so vast, so great, so utterly in control of the world as sovereign, to whom no one else compares, he cares about his people. He's the utterly unique God who uniquely provides. We pick it up in verse 27. So in light of all that, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is dis disregarded by my God? So there's this, this accusation. So this is written from the perspective, even though Isaiah is written before um, Jerusalem and Judah are destroyed and taken off into exile. This is written from the perspective of after that judgment has happened. Um, it gets a little confusing sometimes for us in Old Testament because we like to think it's a really linear, really um, chronological, and I'm probably not even doing that direction, the right direction for you guys. <laughs> um, think of this as like a Christopher Nolan movie who doesn't seem to like linear timelines at all. Um, some of you guys got that joke. Not very many, apparently. Um, <laughs> um, but he's telling this from the perspective of after all these things have happened, after the rescue is coming, this is the God he's promised, and he goes on and talks a lot about and later in the book about what that's going to look like, what it's going to look like for Israel to be restored with the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes to reign, um, and how that's going to look like for Israel um, 
It's going to be great. But for now, Jacob's Israel, the people of Israel say, God, why have you forgotten us? Why are you ignoring us? You ever feel like that? It's like, an, it's like an accusation. Why don't you care what's happened to us? Why are you ignoring us? And then we have the verses that Bert read earlier. Have you not known? Have you not heard? In other words, have you not been listening to me? <laughs> have you been paying attention? He has not ended his care for his people. He is, what it says, the everlasting God. He doesn't end. His care for his people doesn't end. He, he is the creator of the ends of the earth. He hasn't gone somewhere else outside. He, he hasn't exhausted his resources or energy. We run out of strength. We run out of money. We run out of resources all the time. God does not. He doesn't grow. He does not faint or grow weary. He hasn't lost his knowledge. He hasn't lost the people of Israel from the forefront of his mind. He has not forgotten his people. His understanding is so great as to be unsearchable. He doesn't forget his people. Like that, that, that idea shows up in the scriptures a lot. Forgetting, remembering. And that's like to actively care about. Not just our idea of maybe like, oh, I forgot to pick up milk. Um... For someone to be remembered is for someone to be actively cared for. For someone to be forgotten is for someone to be actively not cared for. Um, not just slipped your mind. But the Lord knows his people. He does not faint or grow weary. He is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And here, the next bit. He provides strength to those who depend on him. At this time, if we're thinking about from Israel's perspective, after being judged, they would be considered weak. They would be considered faint. They would be considered weary. Like, we, we've got all this, you know, um, like we saw in verse 1, all this stuff, we're tired. <laughs> God has used up all of his wrath on us. But yet it says, he gives power to the faint, verse 29, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall grow faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
He gives power to his people, to the faint. He's going to restore them. Even the strongest of people. Young men. Their energy fades. But God's energy does not. His strength never fades. And he gives strength to those who wait for him. Now what does that mean? Wait for him. That's a verse, we, we sang it this morning, we read it in Psalm 130, I will wait for the Lord. What does that mean? Some of your translations might answer this question for you pretty easily. Hope. Hope in the Lord. But not just like our idea of hope sometimes, which is like wishful thinking, but like the Bible's idea of hope, where there is a certain expectation that God will act. So to wait, to hope in the Lord, is to expect God to act and then wait for that to happen. One of the commentaries I read says, this expression, those who wait for the Lord, implies two things. Complete dependence on God and a willingness to allow him to decide the terms. I really like that. In light of what we just have spent a time looking at. Who gets to decide the terms in the world? <laughs> Who gets to deci- decide the way things are? Who gets to define reality? The God who made it all. And as was pointed out to us many times by Isaiah here, we are utterly dependent beings. We are created by God, and we are dependent. Remember, drop in the bucket, nothing less than nothing, grasshoppers. Yet he loves us. He cares for us. He provides strength for his people. He provides what is needed for those who hope in him. For those who patiently depend on him. For those who wait for God's help. Lamentations 3.25 says that the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So to wait for the Lord is to expect that he will act, to be seeking him. The, the word that was in there, he In verse 31, shall renew their strength. Could be sometimes translated gain. Or if the idea is that someone's weakness, someone's faintness is exchanged for God's strength. It's not just like, I don't know, playing a video game. Um, where your, your, your level just goes down and you maybe get a little boost sometimes, but it's like getting like, you had one life left and you get like a hundred. Um, if you don't play video games, you're like, that's weird. But um, I don't really play video games because I'm terrible at them. Um, I always lose. 
my five-year-old daughter is better at them than I am. Um, but this, it's, it's this exchange of God's strength, this vast strength that doesn't have limits for our weakness. It says, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. I saw a really cool video the other day, and I wish I could have used it for this, but I figured there would be copyright issues. It was an eagle flapping at 28,500 frames per second, so really slow motion. It was incredible, just the amount of power in eagle's wings. This is a picture of effortless strength. Like, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. The strength that God gives is effortless for him. It's not like, it's not hard. And he gives his people strength. Now, lest we think that we have just been in the Old Testament and like, what does that have to do with us as Christians? We have a very similar idea show up in um, Hebrews 12, this idea of looking at God and then he provides what we need so we can persevere, so we can keep going. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which sin clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He flip, kind of flips it. Run it with the set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When we look at God, when we look at Jesus, it changes our perspective on our circumstances. It changes our perspective on life. Um, God calls us to put our hope in him. There's something to be said here of continuing to put one foot in front of the other, trusting God will act at some point. Some of the most amazing Christians I know are the people who just keep plodding along in faithfulness. They don't always do the most spectacular things. But God demonstrates his faithfulness over and over and over and over in the little things. For people who wait for him, who hope in him, who eagerly expect that God is going to act. And they keep moving that direction. And we have the promise in the scripture that he will complete his work. Whoops. I had one extra verse in there. but There we go. I am sure of this in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will finish his work in us. He will finish his work in his church. He will bring to pass the things that we're studying in Revelation where evil will be judged and eradicated and Jesus is going to come back in all our 
pain and sorrow will be worth it because Jesus reigns and all our tears will be wiped away. But for now, we wait. For now, we, we have to wait on the Lord, to hope in Him, to place our trust, to depend on Him. So I want to encourage you today. If you're going through stuff, and most of us are at any given time, some of us worse than others, I look out and I see some things that I know about, and there's a lot of things that some, that people are going through that we don't, they don't even tell anybody. Um, wait for the Lord. Hope in Him. Your strength will be renewed by the one whose strength never runs out. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's all true. Um, we ask that you would be with us as we go from this place, that we... Um, we put our hope in you. We would trust in you. We would wait on you. We love you, God, and we, we pray that you um, would help us do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.